Hey guys, it's Brett here, back with another blog. I'm going to do something a little different this week. I'm going to be talking about my top five Bible passages in all of Scripture. Um, I don't ever want to say that one Bible verse or passage is better than another, um, because that's simply not true. I mean, we have Paul talking to Timothy, and he's talking about how Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness. So all Scripture is is equal in that sense. But with that being said, I think we would all agree that certain passages of Scripture um, speak to different people differently, depending on perhaps where they are in their individual lives. Um, and I, th I think that just speaks to the Word being a, a living and a breathing thing. So I'm not in any, any means saying that some Scripture is better than others, but in my personal life, the, lives, these are the top five passages that have spoken to me. So what follows are my favorite passages from all of Scripture and some thoughts about them. Um, and these are in no particular order except for the first one. The first passage is my favorite passage. Um, but the next four are, are in no particular order. So let's jump right in with the first passage, which is Romans 8, um, verses 28 to 30. Paul writes to the church in Rome. He says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this letter to the Romans is definitely my favorite epistle. The eighth chapter is definitely my favorite chapter. And Romans 8, 28 to 30 is my favorite passage. So, yeah, I'm starting off with my number one. I guess you could say it's my triple number one. So I'm not even going to save it for last. There is no best for last as far as this is, is concerned. Um, and this passage is awesome because we're first hit with a bombshell that for Christians, everything that happens to us is for our good. This means literally everything. Everything good we think happens to us and everything bad we think happens to us. If we are in Christ, God is working everything for our good. And if that's not an encouragement to persevere as a Christian, I'm not sure what is. And as if it, this verse isn't enough of an eternal promise already, Paul hits us with what a lot of people would call the unbreakable golden chain of salvation. In other words, it's how God saves his people. So first, he, he knew us before we were born, not just a knowledge of who we were, but a knowledge that flowed out of an intimate love for us. So because of this, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. Then at some point in our lives, according to the will of God, we were called to him. Uh, we were drawn to him. And when we were brought to him, we were justified, made right before a holy and righteous God. In other words, seen as no longer a sinner and utter rebellion, but rather as someone who might as well have never sinned. And you may be asking, how can a just God get away with making such a bold declaration? And the answer is, well, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So finally, in a glorious completion of God's work in our lives, he glorifies us. So the body of sin is gone, the heavenly body is here, and the chain is complete. So we have foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. This is the golden chain of redemption, the golden chain of salvation. It's just how God saves his people. Another one of my favorite passages is John 11. It, this is a story of Lazarus, which is found in the first 44 verses of John 11. 
Um, But for the sake of time, I'm just going to read verses 38 to 44. And John writes, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen straps, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. So why does this story speak so so much to me? I think it's because it parallels the work of God in the center, um, the work that God did in my own heart. And we'll talk more about how this this takes place later. But back to the story. Here's a dude, Lazarus, who's been dead for four days, so, and Jesus shows up late. And you're wondering, did he miss the bus or something? Uh, re- in reality, Jesus arrived exactly when he meant to in pure Gandalf fashion. He walks up to the tomb. He's warned that it stinks in there because the body has been dead for... Well, four days. Why wouldn't a body stink after four days? No one understands what Jesus is doing. They've seen him work miracles, but the possibility of raising someone from the dead was taking it to an entirely new level. So Jesus enters the tomb and he utters literally three words. Just three words. No magic, magic ritual, no incantation. He simply says, Lazarus, come out. And I like the King James rendering here. It says, Lazarus, come forth. I don't know, to me, to me it just sounds a little more authoritative. Um, but Jesus is revealing his true authority here, authority over life and death. After all, he is the resurrection and the life. I mentioned that uh, this story parallels the work of God in, in the sinner's heart, and I think this is absolutely true. All sinners are spiritually dead. This means that they're not sick, that they're not just wounded, that they just don't need someone to assist them, but they're literally dead which in a spiritual sense means they can't do anything spiritually. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And, and of course, this is one of those famous passages from Ephesians 2, where Paul is laying out what grace looks like and how we, we do nothing to deserve this grace or earn this grace. It's all by the grace of God. Another one of my favorite passages, maybe this one on the list is one that uh, less people may have in their top five, but it's Job 42, uh, the first six verses of that chapter. And it reads, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? That's God speaking in the previous chapters. And then Job says, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. Again, God says, I will question you and you make it known to me. And then Job's response is, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So, The issue of suffering pervades the entire narrative of Job. Here's a guy who's considered by God to be the 
most righteous man in all the earth, but he loses everything. He loses his livelihood, he loses his health, and he even loses his children. He's a man of extreme faith, so he has faith in God in the midst of his suffering, but Job is also human, and like all of us, questions God during his suffering. He wants to know why this is happening, because he he knows that he's not done anything um, to deserve this as far as Job sinning and therefore God punishing him. So eventually God speaks out of a whirlwind and tells Job why he's suffering. Well, at least that's probably what we were hoping for as the reader, but instead he turns around and he questions Job and he asks him chapter after chapter of just questions such as, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightning? Do you give the horse his might? Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? And again, he just keeps asking question after question. He's interrogating Job now. He's, tur- he's turned the table upside down and he's responding to Job. So what's God doing here? I think he's demonstrating that his ways are higher than Job's ways. How higher? Infinitely higher. And because of this discrepancy, maybe, just maybe, God knows more than Job does about his life, about his suffering, about the future. So Job, being the upright man that he is, falls down and repents in ashes, which for the time was a typical method of repentance. So Job understood that he was not God, and to question God with a limited human knowledge was just plain dumb. May that be the realization of us all when we want to question God. Afterwards, God restores everything to Job, and then some. Now, we may not get everything back in this lifetime that we lose, like Job did, but we can be assured that everything will be made new in the next life. Another one of my favorite passages is Ezekiel 36, uh, verses 24 to 28. This has become one of my favorite passages. It just kind of came out of nowhere in the past couple of years. But it reads, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. So much like my love um, for the story of Lazarus, This passage from the prophet Ezekiel demonstrates how God acts in the heart of a sinner. So we're brought into the kingdom from all corners of the earth. We see in Revelation that there are people from all tribes, from all nations, who speak all different kinds of tongues, who are going to be worshiping the Lamb. So in a moment, we are cleansed from every filthy thought or deed that we've ever committed and ever will commit, from every idol we've ever worshipped, In an instant, we receive a new heart, a heart that actually beats, a heart that is actually alive. The dead heart of stone is no more. The Holy Spirit comes upon us, and all of a sudden, we desire to walk in the way of the Lord. We desire to follow Him. We desire to obey Him. Now, this doesn't mean that we're made perfect overnight, 
but with this new heart comes new desires. We have a new lifestyle uh, that's not characterized by selfish endeavors, but rather by selfless endeavors. We live for God now. We don't live for ourselves. And forever and ever and ever, we're going to be part of the eternal kingdom in this age and in the eternal age to come. Forever, we're going to be his people and he's forever going to be our God. Uh, and it's just a, a beautiful statement of how God works in the hearts of people who are in utter rebellion against him. And I, I fully believe the older I get and the more I, I think about my own personal new birth and, and how God works in the center, uh, it's got to be one of the greatest miracles to ever be, ever be done. I mean, it's right up there with creation and Genesis. It, it's, it's that amazing, the ability God has to um, regenerate the sinner. And finally, uh, John 8, 48 to 59. This is a pretty famous passage. It reads that the, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. So are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do, I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. You know, sometimes I'll come across something Jesus says, and I just imagine him dropping the mic and just walking off the stage. And that, that's exactly what this passage uh, always brings up in my mind. The end of John 8 is one of those passages. The Jews are writing him again. Instead of seeing him as the face of God, they see the face of a demon. I'm not really sure what the Pharisees were thinking when they were accusing Jesus of being a demon, just because he was casting out demons. It seems kind of counterproductive to Satan's plans. Um, but anyway, Jesus alludes to the fact that he was around before Abraham, which of course blows the Jews' minds, and still they don't seem to get it. So Jesus lays it out as clearly as he possibly can before Abraham was I am. And because of his incorrect grammar, the Jews pick up stones to kill him. Of course, we know in reality they picked up stones because Jesus just made the boldest claim he could have ever made and the most dangerous. In no uncertain terms, Jesus had, Jesus had just said that he was God. Yeah, that God. The God of the Israelites, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Jesus was claiming to be the same God who spoke out of the burning bush to Moses saying, I am who I am. And anyone who claims Jesus never said he was God has neither read this passage or they just refuse to believe it. The Jews' response says it all. In their eyes, Jesus had just blasphemed 
for which the penalty was death, and that's why they were picking up stones to kill him. You know, there are just some of Jesus' words that are recorded by the apostles that just seem to ooze of the power and preeminence of Christ. And for me, this is one of them, and that's why it's one of my favorites. So what are some of your favorite stories, some of your favorite passages? Maybe it's an individual verse. Just comment below through Facebook, um, and just let me know. I'd be interested to see what you guys come up with.